Heavenly Father, we, uh, we want to ask that our hearts and minds will be so filled with the truth of your word, with what you have revealed, that we live differently. And we live not only in the light of what we're going to look at this morning, the passage, but we live in the light of the reality that Jesus is coming back. We pray that you would help us to live in the hope that we have in him. So we pray you would tune our hearts and minds to your word. We pray that you would uh, just take from us the many distractions of valid things to do with this life so that we might focus on the ultimate reality that changes everything. In Jesus' name, amen. So let us continue our Father's Day celebrations by turning to discouragement. Um, um, I've uh, been to two funerals this past week, and uh, at one of them we sang Christ Alone. It was a, a, a great song to sing at a funeral. Uh, it was bold and triumphant and uh, declaratory and uh, defiant in the face uh, of death. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience. And uh, in one sense, even though it was a funeral service and there was, there was grief, um, it, it was encouraging. Uh, and uh, I experienced something that I hope you did as we were singing just now in those words in Christ alone. Um, that's, that song uh, captures an awful lot of what's in our passage today. So we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 from verse 13 through to chapter 5 verse 11. So um, open, swipe, or watch on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 from verse 13 to chapter 5 verse 11. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica. He loved them enormously. Um, it encouraged his heart enormously to know that they loved him. And uh, he has uh, written to encourage them to go on in the midst of persecution and not to turn away. And he's answering some questions that uh, have come up from the news that he's heard about how they're getting on. Uh, remember, it's a young church. Remember that they haven't read 1 Thessalonians until Paul had written it. So, you know, we have an advantage over them. Um, and he's writing about something that is worrying them and discouraging them and just pulling the, 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 the mojo, to, to quote that verse from Proverbs, uh, pulling the mojo out of their, their faith, the liveliness. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, as uh, some of you might be during a sermon. Uh, <laughs> but you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, 
with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So Paul turns to the question of Christ's return, uh, not because um, Paul has some timeline and schema and he wants to uh, lay that on them and he wants to fit everything to a nice pattern and answer questions about um, you know, where and when and when does the tribulation happen and is there a millennium and all the rest of it. Um, unfortunately, uh, at this stage in the, in, in the life of the church, uh, we have done that for donkey's years, and we have turned one of the most glorious and frequent elements of teaching in the New Testament, that is the return of Christ, we have turned that glorious return of his and all that it does and all that it means for believers and for this world into an object of confusion. Uh, and, and doubt, and oh, I mustn't touch it, or maybe I'll say the wrong thing, or well, what, what is all this millennial stuff, and um, I don't read the Scofield Bible, and all that kind of, it's just got confused. Um, thankfully, as the degree of, of sort of um, Christian conversation about doctrine diminishes over the years, people are less confused, because <laughs> they're just, <laughs> just playing out with a Scooby, so that's okay. So we can approach the passage um, a, a bit more freshly. These Thessalonian Christians um, are feeling discouraged because they are concerned that those in Thessalonica who have become Christians and who even in the short time since Paul and his companions left Thessalonica and went down to Berea and Athens and then Corinth where Paul writes from, some of them have died or maybe some of them are dying. Uh, maybe some were ill. Maybe... Um, some of them are dying because of the persecution, the fierce persecution that the church faced in Thessalonica in its infancy. They're concerned that those who have died as Christians might be left behind when Christ returns, because Paul has taught them in the gospel. When Paul is preaching the gospel, it included the return of Christ. If you go back to, to chapter 1, you see towards the end of the chapter there how Paul he's commending them for longing for Christ's return. They've been, they've been taught about it. 
And even in our passage here, he refers to, again, you know, I don't need to tell you because I've already told you. That they're concerned that when Christ returns, then those who have died in the Lord uh, might get left behind whilst the rest of them um, meet Christ. And it's interesting that that is on their minds at all. Um, I guess that's rarely on our minds, not just because we've read 1 Thessalonians and they haven't, but, but simply because we tend not to think in those terms. And it's interesting that thinking about it, they are discouraged by that. And it's sort of, ooh, you know, taken the, 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 the oomph and the, the, the courage out of their witness now, their life together. So the first thing we have to do is just sort of um, get our heads around the fact that for these Thessalonian Christians, not simply because they were facing desperate times and uncertain times, and they were given these, these sort of these big question marks over daily routines, over their normal existence and everything else, not simply because of that, but because it was part of the gospel that they had heard and responded to and embraced and were joyful about, the return of Christ was on their minds. Daily, it was on their minds. And I have to uh, think about most of my life and that's not true of me. The return of Christ is something which has become, I think, um, not just for, for me, but for many of us, particularly in the West, has become deferred. It's like it hasn't happened for the best part of 2,000 years. And we can crack on with life and, you know, we're, we're probably thinking that we'll get old and retire and die and all the rest of it. Or, Retire, then get old, sorry. <laughs> uh, to the, those of you who are facing such. Um, so it's like it's not going to happen. So functionally, we don't really do much with the most glorious and influential reality that Christ will come back. So hopefully this morning... Um, we will get a little bit more of that reality into our heads as Paul looks at, first of all, the what of Christ's return in verses 13 to the end of chapter 4, and then the when of Christ's return, chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 5, and then the so what of Christ's return in verses 6 to 11 of chapter 5. The what, the when, and the so what. So what's going to happen? Uh, well, first of all, what's going to happen is that we'll all realize that dead or alive, we are wanted. Uh, we are wanted by God. Uh, don't grieve about those uh, who are asleep. Um, don't grieve as if you've got no hope, because all of us are going to be raised. All will meet Christ when he returns. Those who have died will be raised, and they'll be raised first, so don't worry about them getting left behind, Thessalonians, and we will meet him. That is, there is hope for all. And that hope is totally transformative of the way we live if the reality of Christ's return has ceased to be a deferred thing and becomes a functional thing for us. If we really begin to long for his return, if we really begin to live as if this world is not the only life and this world has a huge question mark over it, 
this world as we know it is going to end and God is going to do something which will utterly and totally transform everything. So all our routines, gone. All our expectations about what we'll be doing next Tuesday afternoon, finito. All our thoughts of having a chance to tell somebody around us about Jesus, ended. All our thoughts about church growing or shrinking, all those cultural issues that we're fighting with, gone. This will alter absolutely everything. So what Paul is writing about is not an add-on to a continuing Christian life down here. What he's writing about is the end of everything as we know it. So there will be life. It's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Um, but it will be utterly and totally transformed. It will be a new creation that we will fully enjoy. And all the concerns and issues about retirement, about pensions, all the concerns about what's happening with our finances, all the concerns about what's going on with our health, gone. Just like that. And the hope of what replaces everything we know at the moment with something transformed and new and infinitely brighter, infinitely better, the hope that the day will come when, as we read in Revelation, there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more mourning. That real life coming is such a reality for these Thessalonians, Paul, that they, they have every reason to live in hope. But when this reality and this event is deferred and we just live as if it's never going to happen because it hasn't happened for 2,000 years. So, hey, it's not going to happen in our lifetime, is it? Uh, then the hope that it brings fades away. And we become preoccupied with what this life is like. And we become preoccupied with its worries and its cares. And they functionally can do more to us on a day-by-day, -day, ordinary living basis than the reality of Jesus Christ's return. But he wants them to have the hope. He wants them to have an enormous and huge sense of anticipation, of looking forward of something wonderful coming. Do you remember when you were a little child and it was getting near to your birthday? And you just get excited. And you'd be counting the days. If you've got little children, you'll see it in them and it will evoke it again in you. It's that, they, they, you know, is it a week away? Oh, it's only a week away. What does a, what does a week mean to a six-year-old? You know, it's just coming and coming and coming. And then, oh, it's like Christmas for kids, you know? And the night before, it's just such excitement. Because there is hope of what the day will bring. Well, every single one of us, when we belong to Jesus, we have the hope of eternal life with him, of everything that is the, the effect and the impact of sin 
in us, around us, upon us, been gone. Gone at a stroke. Gone forever. Never to return. And the basis for that, do you see what Paul writes in verse 14 of, 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 uh, of chapter 4? The basis of that is not how we've done, it's not whether we've got our doctrines of the second coming right, it's not whether we've sort of signed up for 48 sign-up sheets or rotors or whatever, it's not how we've done at work, it's not, the basis for it is the fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And we are united with him in his death and his resurrection. How certain is it that we will be with Christ forever? It is as certain as Christ being in heaven now. The only thing that could take the hope away from any of you that we will not be with him forever is that somehow or another Christ will be ripped out of heaven and stuck back in the tomb and the stone rolled over again, history completely rewound, and Christ defeated. That's the only, Because he did die, and he has risen, and you were united with him in that death and resurrection. You were one with him going into the grave. You were one with him descending into hell. You were one with him when he rose from the grave. And this Christ has risen and has, been, has ascended. And it's this Christ in whom your life exists who will return. So this hope is really sure and certain. And it doesn't depend on how you're doing today or whether you've had a good week or a bad week or whether you've slipped up and sinned again in the same old ways, or whether you can't make sense of life, or yourself, or you feel yourself going backwards in some ways in your walk with Jesus. It doesn't matter that you're not as keen as somebody else. You don't know as much as somebody else. It doesn't matter in terms of this hope. Because this being good news for you is as secure as Christ being in heaven. And then what are the events? Well, uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet. Dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. What's, what does that, that language say? Well, in the language of the Scriptures, this idea of descending from heaven is descending from where God is to us. So God is coming to us with the cry of command and the voice of an archangel. So here is the Lord coming to us who commands all things, who is bigger and greater than all things, with the sound of the trumpet of God, which is always a presage that God is on the field, so to speak, and God is victorious on the field, and is always a kind of sign to be encouraged and vitalized and energized by the fact that God is here and nothing's going to stand against him. And then we have been caught up together with them in the clouds, and that's just another strongly Old Testament image about the glory of God 
So if you go back to Daniel or Ezekiel, you'll find the clouds are, are ways of saying this, this glory, this bright, flashing, brilliant glory of God. And that's where we will be. We'll be caught up to be with him in the clouds to meet the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, we have glory there waiting for us. We're not very glorious now. I mean, obviously you are, because you're looking very nice this morning. But we, we, we aren't glorious. We get older. Bits fall off. You know, they stop working. We're more prone to injury. Our recovery time extends. Gravity wreaks its revenge. You know? We realize that we grow weaker as the years go by. There are some things which we were enormously confident about when we were young, which we become less and less confident about. We look back and, and, and we can catalog a whole range of regrets and opportunities missed. Paul, when he's writing the church in Corinth, talks about this body being sown in humility. It's not very noble. It's not glorious. But it will be raised in glory. And the glory that Paul has in mind when he's writing here to the Thessalonians is the glory of God. When Paul's writing to the church in Rome in chapter 8, he, he talks um, about the time when Christ returns and all creation being glorified. And here it's all creation standing on tiptoe, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And, and he talks about that the, we, we are waiting for the glory not to be revealed to us, but in, in Romans 8, about verse 16, it's the glory of God that will be revealed in us. So we who were made in the image of God, an image fractured and broken and fragmented by sin, will then be fully remade to bear the image of God and will radiate the glory of God. And that's for you. <laughs> we're not just talking about, you know, some, some making some stuff out of a Bible verse because it's Sunday morning and it's a sermon, so you've got to. Like, this is for you. Right? So I've got to start naming you. <laughs> well, I won't because you get embarrassed then. Or a person sitting next to you, if I didn't get their name, might think, oh, it's all right for them, what about me? But it is for you. And do you notice what Paul then does with that? He said, look, encourage one another with these words. Uh, don't stay silent about this. It's very difficult to encourage anybody with words without actually opening your mouth. Encourage one another in the face of death. Encourage one another in the face of frailty. Encourage one another when our timescales have closed right in and all we can see is present trouble. And we do that very, very human thing of reading the whole future in the light of what we're experiencing right now. Which may be pain. Uncertainty. Sadness. Loss. 
insecurity, inadequacy, failure. But we encourage one another with these words. No, the present and how you're feeling right now is not the determining thing about the future. It is not victorious over everything else. It ain't even going to be real for that much longer. Jesus is returning. And glory will be yours. And if you die first, it'll still be waiting for you. So not even death, not even your own approaching death, not even all the questions that that raises, not even the time when you think, what's going to happen to my family? Your own approaching death is not a prison for your soul. It's not a prison for your vision of what God is doing and will do what God has in store for you. Do not be deceived by what seems obvious. Do not be deceived by just what you can see and think now, that which we cannot yet see is more ultimately real and transformative and good than even the best now. So then, of course, being, being Westerners, we say, well, when? When's this going to I want a date. I'm going to put this in my calendar. You know, I don't want to miss this one. Like you would. So the when. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that it's going to be next Tuesday. Um, <laughs> Paul doesn't answer the when, does he? He doesn't say when in, when in the sense that we want a when. We want a date. Um... Or we want the times, we want a sort of a program, you know, so we can work out when it's going to be. Um, but the Bible doesn't satisfy that sort of um, programming demand of ours. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that is, um, from the Old Testament background and the way that the, the, the phrase is used in the New Testament as well, um, the day of the Lord is an absolutely massive, huge day of judgment and justice and restoration and the victory of God. It is God's day. It is the day when everybody else who has had their day will be silenced. Every other dictator, ruler, trumped-up little upstart, every power that seems to rule will have had its day. Now it's God's day. You know, like when, when, when we talk about weddings coming up and we say, oh, the bride is saying, it's your day. Of course it's rubbish, because it's her mother's day. Um, <laughs> uh, mostly. So partly, um, you know. Anyway, that's me dead. Um, <laughs> so... It's all the attention. I mean, like, when I was walking Steph up the aisle and Brian standing there at the front blubbering away, um, the attention was on Steph. 
not on anybody else. It's like all the attention would be on Jesus. All the attention of everybody would be on him. No one will care who the prime minister or the president is. No one will care about anything else. You won't care about anything else because all your attention and all your heart will be drawn out to Jesus. Because it's his day. And he brings victory. And he brings justice and judgment and salvation. So when will it happen? Well, it will happen when people least expect it. It will come like a thief in the night who never sends a memo, never books an appointment with you, just breaks in. So it will come when people least expect it because it will come when people don't believe it. While people are saying there is peace and security, um, little aside, when, when Paul was writing there, I'm sure that he had the non-Christians around in mind, but the tragedy is that for many of us who are Christians, that's actually us now. We look for peace and security in this life. We no longer look for it from our politicians. We probably look for it financially. So we look to the, to the markets. We look to our employers and our pension schemes. And we are the ones who are in just as much danger of saying there is peace and security. So while people are still are saying there's peace and security, then some destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So it happens when people least expect it, because it happens when people most disbelieve it. And therefore it happens when people are totally unexpected, um, unprepared for it. So how do we live as Christians? Well, for this I need a guitar, so Paul, excuse me. So, uh, I needed something which is this would do. Uh, I'm not going to drop it for the lunch. Steve thinking it out, by the way. Um, <laughs> so, here's where we live. Round the edge is Christ's return. Okay? That's simple, got that? And there is a sense in which, as we live, each day is taking us nearer Christ's return. Well, he didn't come yesterday. Um, so, we're at least, we must be a day nearer. And we think that's the only way to live as a Christian is like in that sort of, you know, days flying off a calendar, you've seen it all in the movies, and we're getting closer and closer and closer and closer. But the Thessalonians had not been taught to live like that, and the Bible says what you need to do is you live your life constantly just going around the edge. You are constantly on the edge. You don't know when it's going to happen. And they expected it to happen in their lifetime. And we don't. And we've got stuck on calendar life. Well, it must be near, it must be near. I'm going to die here, so, you know, it's, I don't have to worry about it, really, do I? 
don't need to tell anybody about it either because it's just so far away, it's just like a, so unlikely. The Bible says, no, you've you got to live on the edge all the time. Because at any moment, that return can come. And the reality is that everybody we know is also living on the edge. Everybody you know and everybody you work with is living on the edge. Why? Because sudden destruction will come. So that transforms the way we live in this world. So we have to be different. We have to live not as those who are in the darkness. So that we would be surprised by it. We have to live as children of light, children of the day, not as children of darkness. So we don't spiritually sleep. And we don't, in terms of indulging our lives in whatever way it is, become in intoxicated, become drunk. But we are sobered up by the reality that before this day is out, Christ could return. And if he hasn't, we don't go back to sleep tomorrow. We stay awake. Because he could return tomorrow. And that constantly living on the edge of something better, something wonderful, but something that may mean destruction for the people around us, that, that is, in New Testament terms, a normal Christianity. It's not normal most of the time for most of us. But that's normal Christianity. So we put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation because God has destined us not for wrath but to obtain salvation or deliverance through our Lord Jesus who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we might live with him. Therefore, and he says it again, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. How, how will we live this coming week. We all have our plans. Martin gave the dates of, of meetings with, with, with Harley that are coming up and the, the men's walk on Longhaven Cliffs. And I picked up my phone, put dates in my diary. We tend to assume that if we put it in the diary, it's going to happen just because we've put it in the diary. We get on with our lives assuming that they're just going to keep going on in some kind of routine that we've set up because that's comfortable. We think about the Lord through the day. We think about him when we're doing our Bible reading and praying. We think about him when we're looking for a parking space and there isn't one. But what about thinking about him in the sense of, oh Lord, come, come Lord Jesus. Come and deliver us. Come, Lord Jesus, and be glorified. Come and reveal yourself to this world. Come and have your day. I think our lives stretching out 
How about thinking, Lord, what it would delight to be with you. What a win that would be. This place is not my home. Thank you I'm passing through. Thank you there's somewhere else. Thank you that I get to be with you forever. Which is the focus of it all. We get to be with Christ forever. Live on the edge. Fight spiritual warfare on the edge. You notice his breastplate and helmet. And let us encourage one another and build one another up. This place ain't our home. It's never meant to be. This is not it. This is not the best it gets. The best is yet to come. And it is absolutely guaranteed in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we simply pray that you would, uh, through uh, the first few days even of this coming week, even through the rest of today, that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring this word back to us. And that just something from these verses that we have read will encourage us and help us to encourage others. And just remind us, Lord, that the, the whole frame around the picture of our lives is this wonderful, glorious reality of Christ's imminent return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.